in honor of the sixth month anniversary of our podcast, which is coming up in December, we're doing a raffle. And the prize for our raffle is a sweet pair of Dinamo sneakers. Dinamo sneakers are these really cool high top sneakers that have been made in St. Petersburg since the end of the Soviet Union. And they look very retro. And I will bring you a pair if you win the raffle. How do you enter the raffle, you ask? already salivating over your Dynamo sneakers, all you have to do to enter is call us, call our voicemail box, rather, and leave us a message. Just leave us a message asking some question about Russia. We might play your message on the show. And make sure that in the voicemail, you leave some kind of identifying, like your name or something, so that we can, so that we know who you are and we can enter you and then tell you if you win. The voicemail box phone number is plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six. You have until December twelfth to enter. My anecdote is about trying to buy wine after ten p.m. because there's a prohibition law. Stores aren't allowed to sell alcohol of any sort after ten p.m. in Saint Petersburg in Russia in general. So there's this one shop that's like a chain all over the city that sells alcohol 24 hours but after 10 p.m they just like pretend that they're a bar and so if you buy alcohol from them after 10 p.m they they like require that they open it at the cash register but then you can walk out with it right then you can walk out with it but it has to be open which is quite inconvenient if you're like i want to buy a bottle of wine like let me just pop that cork for you (laughs) you're like oh (laughs) cool i guess i'll just go drink this on the road we didn't go into any of those with you uh, no, but I remember what they look like. Yeah, Russell. There's one near my There's actually two near my house. I live in kind of an alcoholic district. It's because there's a factory nearby. What kind of factory, Lily? There are multiple factories because I live like near the wharf, kind of, like near the water. And I don't know what they make. Sorry. And I'm not allowed on the premises, so I can't ask them. <laughs> you personally, you've been there. I just walk in and I'm like, hello? Hello, excuse me. What do you make here? <laughs> I'm an amateur journalist from Cheese and Russia. <laughs> so that was just a side tangent about factories. But what I was trying to tell the story of is that, like, I'm on a mission to buy a bottle of wine. And it's, like, maybe 11 p.m. I go into this Rossal place near my house. I've done this before, so I expect I know she's going to open the bottle. So I'm like, yeah, uh, can I have whatever? And this was a little bit weird because usually you can choose the wine. And she had them all behind the counter, kind of like the pharmacy situation if you recall yeah that was already like a red flag and then when I was like okay I guess I'm gonna take that one and like point to it or whatever she's like so I can pour it in a cup for you and I was like what and she was like she was like yeah like you can't take the bottle out I have to pour it in a cup and I was like it's a bottle of wine though it's not gonna fit in a cup and she was just explaining in that really like bureaucratic way where she was just like not caring about my specific situation was like I can pour it in a cup over and over again wait so has the rule changed I don't know if that's like they have local like even more extreme rules or something in that particular branch so what I was like but it's a bottle you do have like massive cups and she was like well for a bottle of wine finally I guess I can put it in two cups. And I was like, all right. I kind of like smiled and like looked around at like the alcoholics standing in the corner to see if they wanted to like laugh with me. Nobody did. Should we listen to the voicemail? Hey, my name is Liz and I was wondering if you guys would share about your experiences using the St. Petersburg Metro. Like if you have any weird stories or just tips for people um, getting around St. Petersburg, that would be awesome. 
the first thing I think about when I wax poetic about the St. Petersburg and Moscow metro is that it's so clean. I'm just going to tell a couple of tips because why not? It's nice to have this green card called a padorozhnik in St. Petersburg that you can put money on and then you can use it on all forms of transport. And St. Petersburg has really good public transit. And another tip is that the women that you buy your ticket from or fill up your card with at the cashier people, they don't hate you. They just hate their jobs. They might hate you a little bit. <laughs> they also. hate you a little bit also because you don't speak goddamn loud enough into their little speakers because apparently there like isn't any sound transfer. So you have to yell. <laughs> it's actually just a hole with like a pretend. No, I think it's actually just the opposite. I think it's just a wall that's like soundproof. So they're like they're like, yeah, we put a soundproof wall between you and the cashier. So you're just like a thousand rubles, please, on my card. <laughs> tell tell them about the the babushki. Oh my god. Another thing not to take too personally is if you're trying to enter a crowded metro wagon car. <laughs> we call them wagons in Russia. Like, you know how everyone will wait outside and then the, fir- the people will come out and then you're trying to go in? Well, in that flow to go in, if it's crowded, don't be alarmed if, like, a very bulky woman shoves you from behind. <laughs> because she is wont to do this. But yeah, they don't mean anything by it. They just want you to, they want to be more effective. They want to get the crowd in faster. This is the meat of the podcast. <laughs> Wait, have you ever, have you ever caught your, have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. 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 This shit feel like I won't ever make it home. Graphics backed up, I got to get off of this road. This is She's in Russia. I'm Smith and I'm in Brooklyn. My name is Olivier and I live in St. Petersburg. <laughs> God, I really, I hate myself more and more every week. And here we are. Let's start the show. Yeah, let's start the show. So what are we doing today? Today we're going to read two different texts. One is a short story and the other is an excerpt from a novel. The short story was translated by a wonderful translator, Isaac Stackhouse Wheeler from New York. The novel that we're going to read an excerpt from is actually in the process of being translated right now, and it's being co-translated by Isaac and Riley Costigan-Humes, who's based in Moscow. They often work together and they do translation from both Russian and Ukrainian into English, but these texts are both originally Russian. Okay, so which one are we reading first, Smithy? Let's read 13 first. Okay, so the first text we're going to read is this short story. It's titled 13, and it's by Alisa Ganieva. She's a Russian writer. She's very young. She's 32 years old, and she's from Moscow. Just a little anecdote about her. In 2009, she was awarded the debut literary prize for her first novel called Salam Dalgat, and she published that novel under the pseudonym Gula Kirachev which I may be mispronouncing, but is a male pseudonym. It was kind of quite a sensation, as Isaac says, when she came up on stage to accept the prize, this like beautiful young woman, and everyone thought it was a man. 13 by Elisa Ganieva. Ganieva. 
Ganieva. The gazelle van rattled up to a roadside checkpoint fortified with heavy sandbags, swarming with kebab vendors and hawkers with air mattresses, then turned off the road and raced towards the mountains. After 30 minutes or so, the second-rate landscape gave way to heaps of white slate and bottomless sky spread out beyond the windows. Somewhere below, 150 meters or so from the twisting road, a little creek glistened and tiny excavators dug gravel. Alongside the serious driver, burnt black from the sun, sat a middle-aged man with a paunch, wearing a white shirt and holding a black leather briefcase, attentively staring at the screen of his cell phone through the shimmer of the September sun. In the back were an intellectual-looking old man with a defenseless smile, a red-cheeked woman with her daughter, her work-worn arms crossed modestly on her knees, a young man in odd trousers accompanying a taciturn old lady, probably his grandmother, a morose, unshaven fellow, two women, one wearing glasses and a drab jacket, and the other in an elegant evening dress for special occasions, and also a thick-browed passenger in a skullcap, a young woman with false eyelashes and a robust, red-haired youth sporting a cap the same color as his hair all on their way to some place along the van's regular route creeping along the serpentine road that overlooked a picturesque precipice they passed a valley planted with gray cabbage a large settlement with tidy half-built houses a motley assortment of grocery stalls links of mountain sausages on in display cases and policemen standing along the road in thick body armor then there were more rises and dips, then trembling twists of rocky hills and filling stations with little prayer houses with Alhamdulillah written in big letters. The woman in the evening dress was telling the woman sitting next to her about how her husband's boss had publicly disowned his son before he got promoted, a son well known in the woods by the nickname Phantomus. Her neighbor adjusted her glasses and sighed, looking out at the spots of red light playing among the tops of the boulders rushing past them. As they passed the cemetery, the driver switched off the sugar-coated chanson, and a few people whispered some prayers and made gestures of ablution with their worn hands. An instant later, the music returned, and they rolled into the next village. "'What's the deal? Come on, let me have it,' drawled the red-haired man, leaning toward the girl with the false eyelashes, who had turned away from him. "'It's not like anything's gonna happen.' "'What for? Look, I don't have a phone number.' Come on, what are you messing with me for? I'm talking to you nice. Leave me alone, the girl snapped, adjusting her fashionably low-cut top. Blood rushed into the red-haired man's face. What'd you say? You trying to piss me off? No. Come on, don't put on airs, you crazy bitch. The red-cheeked woman turned to him and dressed him down in her native language. Sit in the corner and leave the girl alone. Looking at the two of them irritably, she added, I'm going to switch places with her. You won't fit, honey, he laughed good-naturedly, finishing her, his mineral water and tossing the bottle at the window. They rolled up to the Hajjal Mahi Bazaar and could hear music playing, hucksters laughing, and cars honking. The man with the defenseless smile stuck his head out the window and looked at the villagers hurrying along the road and cars decked out with ribbons from a wedding procession with heartfelt interest. The village was relatively new. It had existed for no more than five centuries. When Tam Tamerlane laid waste to the area, the widowed and homeless mountain people and their children had to take shelter in nearby caves until a Su Sudakar man named Huja built the settlement that was the beginning of Hajalmahi Russian fortifications appearing here during the Caucasian War, and the people of Hajalmahi were constantly torn between the rebellious mountain people and the imperial governors. They were burned out, exterminated, and plundered by the Tsar's troops one day and by the intractable Murids the next. Afterwards, the captive Shamil stopped here on his way from Gunib and conducted an afternoon namaz in a mosque that survives to this day. 
The war ended and the people of Hajalmahi lost many of their private and common lands. They had to pay higher and higher tribute and they cried out in protest. A rebellion broke out, lasted four months, and after it was put down, the leaders were hung and the rest were sentenced to exile and hard labor. After 1917, the village was divided into four groups. Some supported the Reds, other Denikin's men, and the third group supported Godzinski's Muslim movement, while the fourth group wanted to bring the Turks in here. Because of that whole mess and five or six provocateurs, a couple of the Red Army men that had been given safe passage through the village in the direction of the Gunupskaya fortress got shot. That provoked the Reds to launch a punitive action and killed off almost all the male population. So many of them went abroad after those events and never returned. The triumphant Soviets were generous with promises. They supported Sharia at first and, fearing more uprisings, even finished the construction of the new mosque in Hajal Mahi. But later on, they started tightening the screws and the theologians and their pupils were repressed. The misfortunes of the residents of once-free Dargo didn't end there. During the years of stagnation, the seniors at the high school played a prank and went after the head of a plaster linen with oil paint. Inspectors came and demanded that the criminals be turned over. The people of Hajalmahi refused, but when they threatened to send everybody, without exception, off to Siberia after deliberating in the town square, the people decided to give in. The young troublemakers were taken away under guard. The gazelle stopped in the village right near the stands full of autumn fruit and the passengers got out. A few vans, just like theirs, painted a pale yellow color, stood by the roadside. Their drivers, standing in a semicircle, quickly greeted their newly arrived sunburnt colleague. The red-checked woman and her daughter were already walking between the multicolored rows, and the lady in the drab jacket with the glasses was telling the young man in baggy pants about how the old local mosque was built. Just imagine, they brought in the stones from Akusha and donkeys. It took them a whole year to lay one row of stones around the perimeter. The guy in baggy pants nodded, looking now at the turquoise sky, then at the old lady feeling the rounded coppery melons. The others disappeared into the crush and noise of Hajal Mahi. The bearded one in the skullcap grabbed an empty plastic bottle and ran over to the spring. The man with the leather case disappeared behind a house under construction, pressing his ear to his phone and quickly yelling something, while the unshaven one simply dissolved in the warm air. On the roof of the house under construction, a man in work clothes wearing a metal visor leaned over the jets of sparks from a hissing welding torch. Metal sheets rattled somewhere in the house and behind the bazaar, in the courtyards that descended toward the river where the wedding train had just gone, the sound of a loudless ginkgo rose. Only the red-haired man stayed in the gazelle, looking out the window at the general commotion. About ten minutes later, the passengers started to return to their seats. They stuffed bags full of fresh fruit underneath and rode on. The driver, refreshed by a cheap cigarette, water, and jokes with his colleagues, was messing with the tape player. "'We gonna get there by one?' asked the man with the briefcase. "'Of course.' He chuckled, remembering how much he'd had to slip the highway patrol. The gazelle moved in the direction of the Hapensky Pass, overgrown with pines beyond which the Dargan villages gave way to high mountainous region of Avaria. It smelled of hawthorn, St. John's wort, creeping thyme, and sage. The woman in the evening dress quietly counted the money in her wallet. The girl who had moved to another seat was dozing, her glued-on eyelashes lowered. The old lady was whispering something to the young man in the baggy pants, and he smiled. Maybe I should have given the papers to Halilbeck myself, the one with the briefcase, thanks, scrolling through the contacts in his cell. No, he wouldn't accept a request from me. Everything's fine. I sent it through his Rayev, and his Rayev can figure it out for himself. They're relatives, after all. 
The old man hid his defenseless smile, gazing thoughtfully at the pines that were coming into view alongside the road. He imagined staying in the regional center with his friend, drinking dry wine with him, then going to his little village the next day to the house hidden in the dewy green on the shady side of the mountain, opening the gate made from the headboard of an old bed and going down into the garden and there, under the walnut tree, playing backgammon with his neighbor. The bearded man pressed his forehead to the dusty glass, trying to escape from the trap of his thoughts. Bring the medicine, then come back, and don't tell anyone. They'll find out anyway. The local cop is going to start putting a case together. They made Alishka an invalid, and they'll make me one, too. No, gotta deliver the medicine, then leave home. Or should I? I'll go to Uncle Osman now. Maybe he knows where I can go. Or should I? Uncle Osman isn't the type to just up and do whatever you want him to do. And if I do go, the Abdullah will say it's Kufir. I brought Aisha Tkina's son a wedding present and a present for Patya, Vayaya. Need to extend my condolences to Zyra. I haven't seen her since then. Spun around in the head of the woman in the evening dress, and the woman next to her thought, I'll ask Rusik's son to take me to the tower. I've been coming for years, and I've never been to the tower. I've got to take a picture and show it to Murad Muradovich. Maybe it really is made of church stones. The narrowing road smelled sharply of ozone, cones, and the late summer that had just been awakened. A little hare darted across the gazelle's path. An invisible bird jabbered indistinctly. The red-faced woman's daughter smiled shyly into her fist. In just a moment, the summit they were reaching was about to open onto the Gurga-Belskaya Basin, broken by fissures and caves and covered with swollen hills and creeks. The gazelle turned along the serpentine road, and the travelers suddenly saw, as though coming to meet them, a big truck flying toward them from the rocky crest. A woman's scream burst through the air. The driver grabbed the wheel, turning away from the collision. Horns howled. The girl with the eyelashes fell forward, her face hitting her knees. The passenger in the skullcap loudly called out to Allah, and the gazelle, its tired leaving the ground seemed to already be flying into the abyss. Vahi, vahi, whispered the old woman, feeling her body become weightless. Ah, yelled discordant voices. Way to go, Vala, way to go, the man with the suitcase suddenly began to cry out, clapping the driver who had turned white despite his sunburn on the shoulder. The girl lifted her red face filled with horror. The road was empty. The truck had gone past them and happily disappeared from view. It missed us. Hira is thinking we'd already gone over the edge, whispered the lady in the drab jacket, adjusting her glasses with her shaking hands. Saul, Saul, you're a wonder, the man in the red cap repeated. Now they went on unhurriedly, as though groping their way through a haze that had formed around them. A cloud made from turquoise slowly turned to steel and the basin filled with fog. The driver, who still hadn't recovered from what had happened, sat carefully behind the meandering line down the middle of the road, preparing to descend. Where was he looking, that Abdal in the truck? He might at least have stopped. Vababai, Vadadai exclaimed the red-cheeked woman. He just drove past, scared everybody to death, and disappeared around the turn. I even felt that we were in the air. Did we jump or something? wondered the old man, drying his cold perspiration with a handkerchief. The young man in the baggy pants was ashamed of his fear. My teacher wouldn't approve of this, he thought to himself. He instructed me to overcome my fear with an exercise. An exercise. How did it start? What were the words? The woman in the evening dress ransacked her bag in search of Validol. Animals driving like lunatics. Now I'll find it. What do you call it? Those drops. I'll put some in my water. They almost gave me a heart attack, I swear. They rode a long way in silence. The descent never came. It was just the opposite. The road continued endlessly upward. When do we get to the end of the pass? Asked the man with the briefcase, perturbed. We already should have passed it. The road's kind of running differently. It's going higher. I drove through here every day. This never happened before. We were supposed to be going towards that. The driver unexpectedly realized that he couldn't remember where he was going. That place by the reservoir. 
He stopped short and fell silent. The passenger in the skullcap whispered some prayers to himself just in case. The red-haired one fell silent, took off his cap, and looked sadly out the window. Is the weather turning bad or something? It's raining down below and we're above the clouds now, the old man answered him knowledgeably. There was noise in his head. His thoughts were getting mixed up. For some reason, he couldn't understand why he was sitting in this taxi. Backgammon dice bobbed in front of his eyes. Points pulsed. Mom, did we look at the lot? The daughter of the red-cheeked woman asked unexpectedly. What lot? I think we were going to look at a lot near Makachkala. Her mother was silent, rubbing her forehead with her knuckles. Nothing else happened with the gazelle. The road was gray and empty and led them upward in broad loops, higher and higher. The bearded man dropped his head to his breast and apparently fell asleep. Enough already, mumbled the driver. When will we get to the end of this rise? Something's wrong. Maybe there was a fork in the road and you turned the wrong way, the old man asked. Nah, there wasn't any fork, the driver almost howled. There was the turn where the truck was going and that's where the descent starts. What's going on? And I can't get anything on the radio. They continued to climb. Consumed in fog, the slope moved right, then left. It grew darker inside the van. The old woman watched how the faces of the people sitting in the taxi were lost in the ripples that enveloped the road. Noses melted into cheeks, eyes sunk deeper, lips elongated. The person in the white shirt was wheezing and searching for something in his leather briefcase. I had a certificate that I went to. I went to see someone there in the city. I can't lose it. He closed the briefcase, looked around restlessly. The fog, the pines, the blurred road, the swimming horizon, and nothing else. Let's stop, the woman in the glasses suggested. We have to find out why the road just keeps going up. The driver didn't hear and continued to press on the pedal. Now he didn't care at all where he was going and how far it was. The summit was no closer. The slope wasn't coming to an end, and the features of his passengers were coming apart and becoming unrecognizable. At the same time, at the turn they had left behind, where the brakes of the hapless heavy truck had squealed, more and more people were gathering. People driving past stopped and offered to help. Volunteer rescuers were already moving around below in the heavy rocky hollow where the falling gazelle had struck. They waited for the police. How many died, someone asked, looking into the abyss with concern. All of them, came the response. Thirteen people. These vans are usually full, after all. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Lily's going to read an excerpt from the novel The Gardener's Gone. I 
now I'm going to read a story. And it is an excerpt, as we said, from a novel titled The Gardener is Gone. And the author is Lena Eltang. She is originally from Leningrad. She's 53 years old. Just a little bit about the author. She's a Russian language author, but she lives uh, mostly in Lithuania and Italy. Okay, so yeah, I'm really excited to read this. This, as we've mentioned before, is a novel that is in the process of being translated by, by Isaac and Riley. And we have the honor of reading this excerpt to you right now. So we'll do that. My brother was killed at sunrise and found at 8 a.m. when the fish market opened. His body lay in a bin filled with salts where fishermen would put the previous night's catch. The sun hangs high at 8 in the morning, but the ice is delivered later, so they dump everything out right away before they do the sorting. The cleaning guy unlocked the building and called the police immediately. Then the sirens woke the security guard, who showed up at the market and told everybody it was Bree. So by the time they called me in casino, it was nine, and I was already on the train heading home. I'd forgotten my phone at the dorm, though. They called my mother, too, but she never picks up, on the assumption nobody has any good news. When I got to the market, the police commissar looked as if he'd seen a ghost. He thought I was up north. He'd gotten my number from our neighbor and left a message just a half an hour earlier. There I stood, barefoot and disheveled, as if I'd just latched onto an eagle's tail and flown 300 kilometers. The police officers were smoking, leaning up against their car, the groundskeeper was squatting right by the entrance, and a crowd was already gathering by the market gate, now cordoned off with yellow police tape. My memories are distinct, bizarrely so, even though I couldn't even look at anyone at the time. I remember the sun shining right in my brother's eyes, but I wanted it to be dark. I can even remember the sound the tin pallets made as they were dragged across the granite floor. I sat down, peering into my brother's face, rosy and vital. It looked as though he'd just closed his eyes. Salt glistened in his hair. It was just starting to grow out, and a black drop of blood near his left nostril looked like an unmoving ladybug. A length of green wire that could have been from a crab fishing net lay next to my brother. Maybe he owed someone money, the police commissar asked. Could you give us a list of his friends? Maybe they know. That's not what happened, I answered. I would have known. He would have told me. Okay, it was over some woman then, the commissar waved at the sergeant. All right, get to work. I kissed my brother, brushed the salt from his face, stood up, and stepped out of the echoing hall, cluttered with spotless metal tables. Bewildered fishermen and wholesale buyers were crowded around the pier. They stood there in silence, trying not to look at me. Only old man Vitantonio acknowledged me, nodding and taking off his knitted hat. I walked along the pier, licking my salty lips and thinking about what to say to my mother when I got home. Everything was just like it had always been. Streaks of gasoline in the puddles, metal carts loaded with fish, bobbers like little melons caught in the soggy nets, and stained ropes wrapped around mooring ballards. For a moment, it seemed like this was all some idiotic, practical joke, and everyone would start stomping with laughter any second now. Bree would chase me down in his squelching fishing boots, wrap his arms around me, and lift me right off the ground. Hey, Petra, I heard hurried steps behind me. Wait, I'll need you to sign some papers. Swing by the station tomorrow, all right? When can I pick up the body? I stopped and waited for the commissar to catch up. I have to bury my brother without my mom finding out. Can you help me? You sure that's for the best? He looked perplexed. 
It's not illegal or anything, but that's just not how it's done. A mother should mourn her son. My mom will die if she finds out. She's hanging on by a thread as is. I could have the sergeant tell her. A funeral isn't something to take lightly. You'll have to lie for the rest of your life. Think about that. I'm good at lying. I nodded and went on my way. The sun had already risen over St. Catherine's Church. It was shining right in my eyes. The days start early in spring. The twilight just can't quite settle in. The night doesn't give it any more than a half an hour before it slams down onto the earth with all its weight, like an enormous deep-sea fish on a boat deck, a blind, flat fish slapping its green, wiry scales against the metal. I went to the station all through March, every Tuesday and Thursday. It never occurred to me to worm my way into the Briatico. It seemed like the police could handle it without me. Why else would they call their boss a commissar when he was just a first marshal of the Cabineri? Now he was working on the case of the murdered hotel owner, which was a sensation in these parts. Six people told me six different stories about it. The tinsmith who lives nearby relished telling his version when he came around to fix some appliance or other. He said Big Bucks Avarici had been shot on his own property and propped up in the gazebo till morning, looking like he'd just dozed off. He tailed that hussy wife of his, she's from Perugia, you know, caught her with a lover in the gazebo and took a bullet to the chest, right in his furious heart. She had so little on when they dragged her through the village to the station that I finally got a load of those vaunted breasts. They stuck out like zucchinis in a garden. I was only half listening to him, thinking about how quickly I'd grown unaccustomed to the locals' crass way of talking, and how that vexed me, like the moldy wall in my parents' house. Within a few years of college up north, I had sculpted a completely different Petra, hard, cagey, even a little cruel, one my brother would be overjoyed to see. My cowardice and willingness to submit to circumstances always bothered him. Guess the commissar will close the Avarici case before he gets to my brother. Grit your teeth and wait, but it wouldn't hurt to find some things out myself, talk with people, record my thoughts, and pass everything along to the commissar when the time comes, I thought. The province of Campania isn't paying my law school tuition for nothing, right? I was flat broke, so I worked at the fish stand by the gas station for the first week. I crashed in the storeroom a few times on some canvas sacks that smelled of wine vinegar. I told my mom I didn't want her to be alone while Brie was at sea. She looked at me doubtfully, but didn't bother to object. She had good days and bad days. I remember asking old man Panacella which fishing company could give my brother a job that involved disappearing for a long while, and he wrote down the name on an empty cigarette pack. He added dolefully that he'd check up on my mother, even though he didn't approve of my lying. I'd weigh the slippery calamari in the morning, wash my hands with lemon juice around noon, and then head down the hill to the coast to visit the Carabinieri, a seven-mile trek there and back if nobody picked me up. The commissar had already started ducking me, making the duty officer say he was out. When I'd barge into his office, he'd greet me with quiet yet cogent invective. Nevertheless, they showed me a note, now kept in the archives, that was found on my brother's person. Just two sentences. Come to the grove behind the quarry at 1 a.m. You'll get what you're asking for, stud. Stud was spelled the country way. Fischietto. Well, it was a love note. There was no denying that. A woman's handwriting. Apprehensive. Fischietto. That was what they used to call the donkey that walked in circles at the village's olive oil mill. 
Every fall, we'd run over there to see him in the mornings with a treat, a bun or a dried plum clenched in our hands. In those days, the olives weren't sent off to the oil press in Castellabata. Tightly packed sacks were delivered by cart to the barn at the edge of the village, where the black donkey in his leather harness turned the millstone. His eyes were sorrowful, glossy, black, beautiful, hence the nickname. My brother's eyes were gray, with numerous flecks, while mine are blue. Nobody in my family, except my Tuscan grandmother, whom I never saw, had eyes like that. I got a job at the Hotel Briatico on March 12th, and the police closed my brother's case at the end of the month. No point visiting the station anymore. I was just pissed I couldn't make any headway, even though I was there where I needed to be, practically at the crime scene. A few days before his death, my brother told me he'd witnessed a murder and intended to meet with someone from the Briatico to get some hush money. Money will shower down on us like cod on a boat deck, my brother said cheerfully. Then he added, his voice piercing and bird-like, Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Treasure Island is still sitting on his bookshelf. We tossed around quotes from that novel so often that when, many years later, I received a letter, more precisely an old postcard from him, saying we'd soon be filthy rich, the squire's words crossed my mind. Money to eat, to roll in, to play duck and drake with ever after. What was Bree keeping under wraps? Beats me. Who was the person in question? A lodger or an employee? Beats me. The place for my brother's rendezvous had been chosen judiciously. The impassable road through the eucalyptus grove alongside the market was cluttered with slabs of granite from the local quarry, dumped there back before the war, and hardly anyone goes there. These days they haul fish on the new road around the hill. Why'd they kill him instead of paying up? Beats me. There's an explanation, though. I wasn't planning on going back to Casino. I had vowed to stay until I found my brother's murderer. My rage hadn't cooled. It was just that a light dusting of ash had settled on it. I'd also received a letter from my college. I'd been granted academic leave, so now I could be with my mother, and I hadn't seen much of her the past three years. My life turned into a spring of wistful, dissipated days. When I was going to the station and arguing with the commissar, I had some semblance of activity. Now that he'd given and sent my brother's file to the archive, I didn't know what to do with myself. I headed to Vietri one rainy Sunday to ask around, but none of the local guys would talk to me. Meeting Wernicke, the German, the owner of the dance hall, didn't help. He and my brother were buddies. I was counting on his help, but he told me to scram and mind my own business. He was born and raised in Positano, but everyone calls him the German because of his last name. His grandpa spent some time in a camp for displaced persons, and the Americans got his papers mixed up. Go back to school, the German said from the doorway of his shack. There were lamps dangling everywhere. A vendetta. That's no job for a woman. You can't bring your brother back, and you're egging them on. You know very well they left that olive net there on purpose to point the guys from Vietri. Made it look like a classic delito d'inore. Brie was involved with some local girl, yeah? Could you tell me her name? Listen, girl, I run a dance hall, not a quistura. Everybody comes here, tramps and girls from good families. How am I supposed to know who your brother got mixed up with? Why would he go for someone else's girl? He had enough of his own. If he took something that didn't belong to him, then he paid the price. 
They've already tried to pin three crimes on you. I leaned against the wall next to him. Three crimes in two years, starting with the murder of the stableman. Aren't you afraid they'll investigate and send a real detective from this city? So what if they do? He yawned and began picking at a stain on the red door. A sign reading Babylonia hung behind him. Only the German could call a village disco with bare floors and two tinfoil balls suspended from the ceiling that. They can't chalk every crime up to jealous Vietri husbands. Delito de Nore was outlawed in 1981, and now you serve as much time as you would for premeditated murder. Trust me, I'm a law student. They may have outlawed it up north. The German lifted his stormy eyes towards me. Down south, men still respect the old rules. Our guys didn't kill your brother. Don't bother hanging around here. Quit blabbing and making waves. You Vietri guys will wind up making quite a name for yourselves, I retorted, somewhat weakly. I don't imagine you're happy everyone thinks you're butchers. Don't you worry about us guys, the German said. As for the stableman, he was asking for the olive net. There's no proof of anything else, just idle talk. Why don't you just tell the commissar your village has nothing to do with all this? Why? Because it's too soon to close this case. Because the real murderer roams free. Because the real murderer roams free. What's that to me? All right, look. The broad's name is Ganatori. He stepped inside and slammed the red door right in my face. Turns out Sunday is the best day at the Briatico, especially when it's windy. The lodgers watch movies or play cards in the basement bar, the doctor's gone, and Puglia, the head nurse, goes home. So I'm in charge, if, of course, someone halfway decent, i.e. anyone besides Gnocchi, the physician's assistant, is on duty. Nobody uses his name. They just call him the intern. Rumor has it he procures Viagra and girls for the old fogies, but I don't buy it. No slut could ever get past her concierge. She can smell them a mile off. Everyone at the hotel has a nickname. I think I have one too, but nobody says it to my face. Everybody's all smiles, so polite, no bickering. That's the first rule around here. The second one is no flirting on the job. All anybody does is dish out gossip, especially in the kitchen. That's the warmest spot here. You can always nab a few biscuits and steal a few sips of coffee. Our cook's been around. He worked at the old restaurant under Romano Prodi during the times of liars and spirits, as he says. He says hardly anything has changed since then, either. Everything's done the old-fashioned way. Even the telephone in the lobby looks like a prop from Casablanca. The concierge uses a switchboard to connect callers. Good thing nobody really calls the old-timers. I don't know why the deceased owner kept everything that way. Well, he did invest a hefty sum in knocking down the partition walls and erecting a gallery, perpetually empty, in the winter garden. The staff dubbed it the Bridge of Kisses, although nobody goes there on dates. Standing in the gallery is scary. The ground slips out from underneath you because the floor is transparent, even when it's littered with withered leaves. It always seems like the glass is about to shatter and you'll crash onto the crowns of the young cypresses. At night, when the lamps come on, the gallery looks like a shining green snake. Its mouth and tail are level with the roofs of two towers, while its stomach stretches over the hedgerows and the parking lot. There's no Wi-Fi and just two decrepit computers in the whole building. One's in the manager's office, and the other one's in the reading room, which everyone calls the club, on the second floor. It's off-limits unless you're in good with the librarian, or you are the librarian. 
The first week whizzed by, just meaningless bustle. I didn't make any headway, which kept me up at night listening to the hotel noises. A garbled radio somewhere upstairs, drafts rattling the window sash, water singing in the pipes, the wet slapping of rags and the cleaning lady's pattering footsteps. She's older than all the guests. The thought that I was in the same building as Bree's murderer, but incapable of doing anything to him, distressed me. I didn't even know his name. I squirmed on my narrow bed, feeling the wall that faced the sea chilling my side. The staff rooms were on the first floor and hadn't been remodeled since the days of the casino. Every little crack whistled. If it's true that drafts bode bankruptcy, then this hotel wasn't going to last long. Before, it felt like all I had to do was take one good look around, make friends, and figure out what made those people tick. And then I'd pick the murderer out of the crowd, see his face, and grab him by the arm. But where should I look? Among the lean, well-groomed old-timers strolling the grounds in their blue-striped robes? Among the haughty doctors and mute, starched maids? I know one of them killed my brother. Someone living at the Hotel Briatico. Someone with strong arms capable of pulling a garret so tight the neck burst into a long, black smile. That's what happened to the stableman, Lydio, too. I saw the police report and photographs. My brother actually got off easier. The garret wasn't pulled so tight. He was left with a mark, but the skin didn't break. If I had listened to my inner voice and come a few days earlier, then my brother would have met me at the bus stop. We would have hugged, my head barely reaching his shoulder, and headed home down the narrow road winding through the vineyards. In the evening, we would have fried some fish, cracked open a bottle of Ducale, and sat down on the old bench in the garden for a chat. In February, when I got an old postcard from Bree and sat in an empty classroom to read it, I immediately sensed he was trying to put one over on me. We had to talk at home, be straight with each other. My brother hadn't been answering his cell, but that wasn't unusual. He never pays his bills on time. I kept calling home all evening, picturing the phone flooding our apartment with sound and mom fixing her gaze on it, lacking the resolve to pick up. Eventually, my brother answered. There's nothing to worry about, he said in that sneaky tone of his that always spelled trouble. Probably shouldn't have sent you that postcard. I could hear him walking around the room, dragging the cord, probably looking for his cigarettes. Who are those people in the picture? Why is there a hole? I was rushing to ask him all my questions before he got fed up. Did you buy it at an antique shop? Yeah, yeah, look, have you heard the talk around town about Avarici's murder? I knew him. I picked grapes at his uncle's vineyard for a while. He had a ton of family in the village. The owner of Briatico? How's he tied to the postcard? Around here, everything's tied to everything, he lowered his voice. But I've already untied it all. I can't give you all the details yet, though. You'll find out soon enough. Pinky swear. Does it have anything to do with the money you're planning on getting? Listen, Petra, don't forget, I'm older than you, my brother said in a conciliatory tone. This isn't a conversation to have over the phone. What scheme have you cooked up, pray tell? Where's the money going to come from? A certain individual who got tangled up in some dirty business will be induced to pay. He said it with an English accent, impersonating the detective from an old TV show we used to watch as kids. The detective was afraid of dogs, investigated petty crimes in Leicestershire, and always came out on top. Don't tell me you robbed the hardware store, I tried joking, but an ill premonition was making my temples throb. 
I saw a murder, he said, and I heard a lighter flick. It was the owner of Briatico. I saw the murderer three steps away from his dead body. It was a mistake to be seen, a mistake that'll be costly. At least that's what we agreed to. Where does a bird land when it forgets where it's going and falls behind the flock? Does it wind up spending the winter summer cold? During the first few years after my father left, mother was like that bird, powerless and stupefied, like a waxwing that had gorged itself on frozen rowan berries. Then I got used to it. A few years passed, and it felt like he had never been around at all. Mom warmed up a bit, too. Her arms and shoulders filled out. Her ring dug into her finger. The armholes of her dress came apart at the seams. Yet the wrinkles at the corner of her mouth have dulled. Her actual mouth was the same, fresh as a red apple with a crunchy, snow-white core. I think the mouth is the most important part of the face. It's the first thing I look at. My new friend Puglia's mouth is wavy, like a Malaysian crease, but her lips straighten out when she laughs, so you can see what she looked like 30 years ago. My brother's mouth was sharply and distinctly carved, and so dark it once crossed my mind that I'd never be able to kiss him on the lips, which upset me. When I saw my brother in the morgue, two hours before the funeral, his mouth was barely noticeable. His body was all hard and shrunken up. There was a cheesecloth wrapped around his neck for some reason. The only morgue nearby was at the local hospital in Vietri, so our neighbor Jiri and I had to drive over in a rented hearse. We had a hard time finding the wing that housed it, jutting out behind the main building, its white walls surrounded by an overgrown garden. You would have thought it was the servants' quarters. An orderly was talking with the commissioner. I caught a few snippets. The congregation will pay for the town hall, plus the pipes are leaking. I bent down to kiss my brother on the lips. My black kerchief came undone and fell to the floor. My hair, which I'd pinned up in the morning, spilled out onto my face. People around here don't do their hair when they're going to funerals. I left the house that day without washing my face or combing my hair and hid my black shoes in my duffel bag. I told my mother that Bree had been offered a job in Salerno, so he'd hopped on the morning train and would be gone for six months since the trawler only hired long-term workers. He left us a letter, but I misplaced it. I promised to read it to her as soon as I found it. My mother merely shrugged. She'd been going through a rough patch, spending her days in the garden, parked on the broken wicker chair Bree had dragged home from the yacht club when he'd done some part-time work last summer. That brother of mine was always bouncing around from job to job, lifeguard at the club, tattoo artist in Amalfi, bartender at the joint down by the train station, Sometimes he'd sell fish at the market or pick olives out in the groves. He tried his hand at just about every job you could get up and down the coast, just so long as you didn't have to learn anything to get them, because he wasn't the learning type. My brother lay on the oilcloth, looking yellow, imperious, and fragile, like a hollow terracotta figurine. As I looked at his shut eyelids and dead mouth, curled into a barely noticeable grin, I suddenly understood that I had previously chosen not to understand, and it made me shudder. Bree had stuck around our hometown because he knew there was no way I was going to. He gave up his turn and let me go. That's what he was really doing. I was going on 15 when I started churning out letters, inquiring about various college scholarships, financial aid programs, and housing plans. I got accepted, smashed up in my piggy bank, packed all my dresses, and headed east for Brindisi, a city that I only knew two things about, 
It's where Virgil died and where the Oppian Way ends. Then I transferred to a school up north, found my own housing, got a scholarship to study history and law, and finally chilled out. I was supposed to start a new life in just two years. Not going to happen now. Everything's come crashing down. The orderly stepped into the room and made a barely visible gesture. The commissioner was waiting for me in the lobby. Our neighbor Jiri kept wiping her face with a tissue. She probably wanted to cry, but the tears wouldn't run down her cheeks. They just pooled in her eyes, making it look like she was wearing Coke bottle glasses. It pained her that my mom wasn't there. She grazed her hand across my brother's forehead cautiously, seemingly afraid she'd accidentally peel away a layer. Have a good cry while we're here, Petra. Otherwise, you won't be able to keep it together at the cemetery. Ah, oh, there you go, biting your lip, just swelling up with rage. She motioned in the direction of the village. I mean, who's going to figure out who your brother crossed? I didn't know who Bree had crossed, and I still don't. The only difference is that as I hovered over my brother's body, I swore to myself that his murderer would go to prison. I think about it differently now. I think I'll find him and kill him. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at She's in Russia. Sign up for our newsletter at She's in Russia.com. And as always, call in with the potential to win your own very own pair of Dinamo sneakers at plus one three four seven. Two nine two seven one two six. I just wanted to say thank you to the translators of these two texts. Again, the short story was translated by Isaac Stackhouse Wheeler, based in New York, and the excerpt from the novel *The Gardener Is Gone* is currently being co-translated by Isaac and Riley Costigan Humes, who is based in Moscow.